The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It's a privilege to look with you this morning at God's Word. I would ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30. I'm going to read a bit of a longer passage this morning, but as we read, we need to be paying careful attention to the images that God is using in this passage, images that God uses to describe Israel and their future. In many ways, God is painting a portrait of Israel for us, and I'm sure that many of the artists in our congregation could give a better definition than I can, but most of us can probably recognize that there's a difference between a picture, or perhaps a photograph, and a portrait. A picture captures a moment or a fact, but a portrait captures someone's character. One artist put it this way, said, portraits are not just a depiction like a picture is. A portrait is an interpretation. A portrait is the art that adds the extra rosy cheeks on the active child. It's the, the set jaw that it gives to the determined person. It's the, it's the glint that it adds to the eye of the villain, showing us who this person is. And that's what Isaiah 30 is doing. It's using images to help us understand the character and the nature of God's people and his plan. If you would read with me Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 26. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter and the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's health is worthless and empty. There I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore... 
This iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or dip up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning in rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, Yet your teacher will not hide himself any more, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, Be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground, and bread the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Let's pray. God, you have given us this word. This is your word given to your people almost 3,000 years ago and yet also given to us today. So I pray that you would help us to understand you more through these words. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah was one of God's prophets who spoke to his people around 700 B.C. Now, a prophet of God to Israel or Judah could be asked to do any number of things. Some of these things were life-threatening or certainly life-altering. But the central task of the prophet was to bring God's word to his people to do one of two things. To expose his people's sin and announce judgment but also to announce coming hope and salvation to God's people. And in this passage, Isaiah is doing both of these things, confronting sin and announcing hope. And I want to look at each of these things in turn. Now, Isaiah 30 can be a little bit of a difficult passage to kind of dig our fingers in because there's not a lot by way of concrete explanation of what's happening behind this passage. What's the historical background? We only have to pull things from a few chapters around it to understand precisely what's happening and what what, uh, initiates God's word here. But behind this chapter is the reign of Hezekiah, king of Judah. 
Hezekiah came to the throne of Judah shortly uh, after the rising Assyrian kingdom swept down from the north and conquered the northern kingdoms of Israel as well as other nations, Damascus and, and others. And Assyria now remains a major threat to Judah as well. But down south, Egypt is also rising in its prominence, and Egypt is offering an alliance to anyone who will join them in their opposition to Assyria. And so as Hezekiah sits here with this this threat of Assyria coming against him, he has a decision to make. Of course, God has made promises to him. God has made promises that he will protect them and save his people. But he also has this offer of an alliance from Egypt. So where is Hezekiah going to turn for help? As it turns out, he decides to play the political game and bank the security of Judah on an alliance with Egypt. Now, maybe the more practically minded among us would say, well, what's the problem? Why would God object to Hezekiah making a very practical move to go to Egypt and make an alliance for their security? But in verses 2 through 11, God gives us two reasons why Judah's actions is so deeply rebellious. To begin, we have only to cast our minds back on Israel's history. Judah's very identity, its existence as a nation, is bound up with the single greatest moment in its history. When God came and rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, delivered them from the power of Egypt, led them through the wilderness, and brought them to the promised land. And when God delivered his people from Egypt, God definitively demonstrated his superior power over Egypt, over Pharaoh, over the Egyptian gods. And not only did God definitively demonstrate his superior strength to Egypt, but God also led Israel out of Egypt and then, and then formed a covenant with them at Mount Sinai where God promised to be their God and that they would be his people forever. Given God's clear demonstration of his power over Egypt, it's laughable that God's people would here turn away from God and look to Egypt for help. And it becomes even more astounding when we realize that Judah is abandoning the God who covenanted to be their God in order to go look for help from their former oppressors and enslavers. This is deep rebellion. And so in verses 2 through 5, God warns Judah that the protection they're seeking from Pharaoh is going to be turned to shame and disgrace. Even though Egypt looks great, their, their current political power stretches from Zone to Hanes, a, a huge section of, of northeast Africa, which is demonstrating their current political power. Even though it looks like Egypt is great, their help will not profit Judah. Judah has gone to Egypt rather than to God, and the result can only be shame and disgrace. I think the picture in verses 6 and 7 is one of the most striking pictures in Isaiah. God gives us this this picture, this image of Judah's envoys, the messengers that Judah would have sent down to Egypt to, to form this alliance. Judah's messengers are making a dangerous and strenuous journey down to Egypt with their donkeys and camels loaded with Israel's treasures to pay to Egypt in order to get this alliance. And the messengers are taking the exact route that God had brought Israel out of Egypt with all of Egypt's treasures in tow just a few generations earlier. Deuteronomy 8 reminded Israel that their God brought them through the terrible wilderness, a wilderness with fiery serpents, to rescue them from Egypt and give them the promised land. 
And yet now in these verses, we vividly see these Judeans working their way back with anguish through the desert with lions and fiery serpents to go to Egypt to pay Egypt their treasure instead of turning to the Lord who had overcome Egypt with a single word a few generations before. And so verse 7 concludes the only natural conclusion. Egypt's help is worthless and will end in disgrace. This is the first reason that Judah's rebellion is so deep. But secondly, God also condemns condemns Judah for failing to come to him for help. In verse 2, God says, You set out to go down to Egypt without even asking for my direction. And in verses 9 through 11, God declares that his children are unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They have silenced the prophets saying, Stop prophesying God's word to us. And they've even come to the point of saying, let us hear no more about this Holy One of Israel. That statement should be shocking. That statement should, which should ring in our ears as we hear God's people, whom he has saved and shown his power, show zero interest in the Holy One of Israel. Remember, God had promised Israel that if they would call upon him, he would answer them. And he's done that again and again. He has saved his people again and again. And yet here are his people in danger. And not only do they fail to seek him, they say, enough of this God of Israel character. We've got a better plan. We're going to Egypt. And the whole situation should be turned on its head in our minds and horrifying as we see this rebellion. As verse 12 summarizes, Israel has despised God's word and trusted in oppression instead of their God the twin heads of their rebellion. Now, we can't understand or appreciate this passage of Scripture if we don't hear and feel the ugliness of Judah's sin here. If we don't feel it and see it as God sees it. If we don't feel the joyful shout of deliverance as God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, now turn to rejection in favor of idols and subjection to Egypt if we don't feel the kindness of the glorious God of the universe coming and making a covenant with his people, now spurned by his stubborn creatures who do what they want, if we don't see this contrast and see it for its full ugliness, we miss the heart of this passage. But God sees this sin for what it is, and he must punish it. God is just, and he must come to sinful people with judgment. And he does. He describes this punishment in verses 13 and 14 where he says that your sin is going to be like a a breach. Envision this high wall with a crack that starts at the top and begins to grow. He says it will be like a breach in a wall that bulges out until suddenly the wall crashes down in an instant. That is what your sin is like, Judah. In fact, your fall is going to be so resounding that it will be like a potter's vessel that's smashed into so many small fragments that there will not even be one big enough to scoop up some water from a cistern. God goes on to say in verses 15 through 17 that Judah will flee, but they won't flee as fast as their pursuers that a thousand of them shall flee at the threat of one enemy until all that is left is a flagstaff on top of a hill. That is an image, a flagstaff on top of a hill. This is the picture of an abandoned ghost town, once busy, but now the only thing left is a banner fluttering in the breeze saying someone used to live here 
but now there is no one left. The promised land flowing with milk and honey where the multitudes of God's people, as many as the sand and the seashore, came in. Now all that is left is an empty city and a fluttering flagstaff. This is the extent of God's judgment against his people. And it's no wonder that God's prophets wept when they saw this picture. This picture of God's land decimated, of the walls of Jerusalem destroyed, and God's people taken away captive. But it's right here. Right here, when we get this image of the flagstaff and the abandonment of Judah, the empty city, the judgment, it's right here in the middle of the bleakest picture that God suddenly reverses course and for no apparent logical reason promises grace and mercy. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, God announces the high and the holy God spurned and rejected by mere creatures promises to exalt himself. That's not surprising. But he promises to exalt himself not in the shock or awe of judgment, but by showing mercy. This is the God who justly destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, who now promises that you, not just any people, notice the you, that you, Judah, will dwell in Jerusalem. You will dwell no more. God will surely be gracious to you. The shocking reversal where God's grace seems to have come out of nowhere. This reminded me I had the opportunity this past winter of coaching second grade girls basketball. It's a highly competitive affair. I was coaching through upward sports and each week I had the chance to share the gospel with the girls. And I remember one girl as I was talking about how God sent his son to die for people who had sinned against him. And one girl in the middle as I was sharing this, she blurted out, she said, but why? Why would he do that? And isn't that the most insightful question that we could ask? Because herein, in this reversal, this unexpected reversal of this passage, we find the mystery of the unfathomable mercy of God. Why does this passage change from judgment to mercy? There's no apparent logic here. But the funny thing about this passage is that God does see it as logical. You notice the word, therefore? The word therefore presents logical reasoning. I am going to judge you. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. What is the logic here? The only logic is the person in the character of God himself. The person in the character of God who is so steadfastly faithful even when we are not that he comes to his people. The glory of God who desired to save his people and make them his forever despite their sin. It is the person in the character of God that is the only answer to this reversal. And that's what I want to look at next. We've seen God's judgment, but let's look at this promised grace and mercy in verses 20 through 26. And as we look at these images that God uses in these verses, I want us to see three things about the hope that God promises to his people. First, Notice that Judah is promised the blessings that would have been theirs if they had kept covenant with God in the first place. Particularly verses 23 through 25, if you you cast your mind back to Deuteronomy where God made a covenant with his people and promised to them blessings for keeping the covenant, he promised them rain so that there would not be famines, rich and abundant crops. And here in verses 23 through 25, Isaiah gives Judah the hope of securing these blessings at an unbelievable level. 
we're told that the crops will be so abundant that the animals don't eat their normal food anymore. They eat seasoned fodder and winnowed grain. It's not what animals usually eat. It's people that eat seasoned food and winnowed grain. And so Judah's abundance is going to be so great that they're going to feed their farm animals from the overflow of their table. Well, and notice also that the, the tops of the mountains are going to be running with water. Well, picture the way any geography works. The streams are running in the valleys. The valleys are where you have water to grow crops. And yet God's abundance is going to be so great that even the very mountaintops are going to have running water and are going to yield the abundant produce. In the midst of the darkest judgment against sin, God promises abundant blessings that were supposed to be theirs if they had obeyed God. How? Why? How can this be true? How does this come about? Well, notice secondly what the passage tells us. How is it that Judah can hope for blessings when they have rebelled against God? Again, I want you to cast your mind back to Deuteronomy for a minute. This covenant that God made with his people. In Deuteronomy 28:14, God gave Israel the terms for securing the blessings of the covenant. He says this, These blessings will be yours if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Well, notice verses 21 and 22 here in Isaiah. Isaiah picks up on this exact phrase, arguing that Israel will be guided in God's way so that they don't turn to the right hand or to the left and that they will end up defiling the idols and other gods that they have been chasing after. But notice the key. The key is how this comes about. Judah's hope is not that someday they're suddenly going to decide, oh, I'm not going to go to the right hand or left hand anymore. I guess I'll start obeying God. That's not their hope. Their hope is that their teacher is going to himself show up. Notice what it says. Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. You shall see his face. And then it tells us that their teacher is going to come alongside them and say, this is the way. Walk in it. God no longer stands far off and waits to see what his people will do. God draws near. He shows up. And God himself enables his people to be and to do what he calls him to do. It's God's action that comes. It's God's action that shows up. It's God's action that leads to the fulfillment of the covenant and enables these blessings to flow forth. What a perfect picture that points us straight to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, sent to rescue and redeem his people, who showed up himself to secure the mercy and grace of God for us and to give us his spirit to guide us and say, this is the way, walk in it, and you will find hope for your souls. God acts first for his people in order to bring them to blessings. Thirdly, though, note that the description of God's promised blessings goes beyond anything that Judah could have hoped for. It goes beyond even the blessings promised in Deuteronomy 28. Because look at verses 25 and 26 here. Here, God begins to promise something even more glorious. A day of great slaughter is coming in which God will justly punish all of his enemies and his peoples. And that day is going to bring in a time when the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun is going to be seven times as glorious as the light, as the brightness, as the glory of seven days worth of sunshine. When we read this, 
your mind should immediately be turning to Revelation, where the moon and the sun's light is no longer necessary because the brilliance and the glory of the Son of God who shows up and is our light and is our brightness and our glory himself. The day when God comes to heal his people is not an ordinary day. It's the beginning of eternal glory. With all sin, all suffering, all enemies defeated, God comes to bind up his broken people, to heal his broken people, and to bring a day of deep and complete joy as God brings us to dwell with him forever. What a beautiful hope. I want you to, I want you to imagine for yourself for a minute. Imagine that you are a man or a woman in Judah hearing this prophecy. In the face of judgment and sin and suffering and desolation, what a hope this passage is to set your heart on. This prophecy doesn't give all of the details of how God is going to do this. It doesn't tell the full story of how God's going to send his son Jesus to die in our place, to take our punishment, to rise again, to give us favor and blessing, to be his forever. But it gives us the hope. It gives us the hope in all of its gripping vividness that stubborn sinners may still find healing, may still find mercy, and the blessings of life in a relationship with God in a glorious future. What a hope this is given. Yes, this passage says, your teacher may lead you through the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. This is not promising the end to all hardship right now, but it is promising that that is the end. We are headed for hope, thanks to God himself. Before we close, I want to notice two particular things about this passage. This passage in its storyline of hope for sinners is applicable to every one of us. But I want to notice as we apply this passage two other key applications that this passage gives to our hearts. First, look at the nature of Judah's stubborn rebellion against God. When Isaiah describes the people as lying children, stubborn and rebellious people who tell prophets to stop prophesying and we don't want to hear about the Holy One of Israel anymore, this seems like pretty brazen, pretty stubborn rebellion, a pretty great description of of open wickedness. And it can be easy for some of us who sit here in the pew this morning and hear this to see no parallel between our hearts and lives and what Judah is doing here. I would never say that I don't want anything to do with God. I'm, I'm here sitting, listening to his word after all. But as one commentator notes, Isaiah is not giving us direct quotations from the people here. These aren't the exact words they use. Rather, what Isaiah here is doing is setting forth the nation's attitude. Remember, God is painting a portrait. He's revealing their true character. And behind these words is a heart a heart, and, and yes, there are certainly dramatic examples of wicked kings in the Old Testament who do silence God's prophets, but many in Judah just went about their days. They went about their day praying to idols because their idols seemed to offer them the most immediate hope. They went about their day not thinking about God's law because it didn't seem like the most practical way to navigate their problems. They went about their day not li- think, listening or going to God because he seemed pretty distant and unresponsive. But it's precisely in this attitude of careless negligence, in this pattern of looking to other things for help and hope, that Judas' sin was so rebellious. As I thought about this, I thought about, maybe you can imagine, two sets of parents. Some of you may know a parent who is deeply grieved by a child who is openly rebellious, 
who openly spurns their rules, who openly mocks them and rejects their relationship, who openly says, I don't want anything to do with you, and I hate your laws, and I'm gone. But maybe you imagine another parent. Maybe you imagine another parent, and, and their child is not openly rebellious, but, but their child, their child just casually doesn't do anything they ask them to do. Their child shows no interest in a relationship with them whatsoever. Their child doesn't listen to their rules, does what they want, and goes about their life, not even thinking that their parents are acting like their parents even exist. Both of these children have the same rebellious heart. And both of these children, the self-sufficient rebellion, underlies each. God's word here calls out the true ugliness of a heart that perhaps while even sitting in the pew does not heed God's word, makes plans and decisions without regard for God, and looks to people or things other than God for their hope and their security. And I think the picture of Israel going to Egypt, their former enslaver for help, is such a powerful image, and I've thought about it all throughout the week. If you think about Romans 6 in the New Testament, Paul tells us that sin is our slave master. If we are outside of Christ, sin is our oppressor. And if we are now in Christ, then sin is our former slave master. It's our former oppressor. It's it's the thing that held us in self-centered destructiveness that yields no help and leads only to shame and disgrace. And yet even those of us who know Christ, when we're stressed by life or afraid or anxious about what's coming or bored with what we have, we so quickly turn and head straight back to the same sins that God set us free from. And we're so easily caught by them again and we suffer the consequences of them again. And when I think of the exalted greatness of our God, his unexpected life-changing grace and mercy, and then I think about how easily, how stubbornly, how nonchalantly I just go back to the same sins God died to set me free from, I get a true sense of my own heart. and I get a true sense of my desperate, desperate need for a Savior. These heart attitudes of returning to sin and looking to things other than God for help and not listening to his word, they manifest themselves in thousands of ways in our lives. There's no way we could cover all of the ways these heart attitudes show up in our lives. But I want to encourage you to pray three prayers this week. Three short prayers this week as you consider your heart in light of this passage. First, God, would you show me the things that I go to for peace or comfort or coping with my worries and anxieties and fears other than you. God, would you show me what things I run to that are not you for help and hope in my life? Second, God, would you show me the sins that I keep running back to that you have died to set me free from? God, show me what sins I keep running back to that lead me only to shame and disgrace. And third, God, Would you quickly make me aware when I am running through life, making my own plans, doing my own tasks without listening to your word or paying regard to what you have to say to me? God, would you show me quickly when I'm going about my life and I'm not listening to you and running to you? I pray that God would give us a clear picture of our need for our Savior as we see ourselves in this description of Judah's stubborn sin. Secondly and lastly, this passage repeatedly describes one key attitude that should characterize God's people. 
one key response that leads to hope. See, here's the question that maybe we're asking ourselves. Okay, God's people were sinful. God has offered this hope, but what does God call us to? What is it that he wants us to do? What is the response of our heart that God calls us to or longs for from us? Well, note that this passage repeatedly describes one key response. Look at verse 15. God said, the Holy One of Israel said, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And then in verse 18, the Lord says, blessed are those who wait. Blessed are those who wait for him. Listen to these words. Let these words flow over your mind and heart. Rest, quietness, trust, wait. That is the heart that God is calling us to. What a contrast these words are to traveling through a wilderness of lions and serpents to get uncertain help of a foreign nation. What a contrast to the anxieties of wondering if that nation up north is going to defeat us and conquer us. What a contrast to our almost daily worries and plans and attempts to bring stability or help or, 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 or enable us to navigate the disappointments and the uncertainties and the sufferings of life. Quietness, rest, trust, and wait. The only action that God calls us to here is to return, to come back to him and rest and trust. And this makes perfect sense because we cannot overcome judgment ourselves. There's no way we can overcome judgment, but the Holy One of Israel, the Lord, the Exalted One can. And so hope is not found in what we do or accomplish, but in our willingness to return and to rest and to be quiet and to trust and to wait. Now, ultimately, of course, as we turn our minds to the New Testament, we find that Jesus Christ is the key to this attitude. He's the key to this heart. Because maybe when you hear this, you think of how Jesus calls to us and says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest to your souls. Do you hear that? Return. Return to me. Come to me. And I will give rest to your souls. And one of the greatest details that we discover as we read God's word is that this glorious vision of healing and hope and binding up our hurt and our brokenness. This is blessing that comes to Judah in Jesus Christ, their Savior. But then this offer of blessing is also offered to every person across the world. The hope of Israel becomes the hope of everyone, even us 21st century Lancastrians. Anyone who comes to Jesus Christ and puts their faith in him for forgiveness and reconciliation with God has this hope of blessing and binding up and healing and hope. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to end with this question. If God were to describe your portrait this morning, if God were to paint your portrait, what would it look like? Would your portrait be that of a frantic messenger seeking security from things that oppress us, of a stubborn child trying to figure out life on our own but refusing to consider the word of God? Or does your portrait show you in quietness and in trust, listening to the voice of your teacher, waiting by brooks running with water, all of your brokenness healed, as the blazing light seven times the glory of the sun dawns on you in the appearing of your Savior.
pray. God, what a word of hope you have given us. What a word that sees our hearts so clearly. What a word that so desperately paints the picture of who we are in ourselves. And yet, and yet a word that comes in glorious hope. Not because of us, but because of a great Savior. Because of grace and mercy that breaks in because you are an exalted God. I pray that we would find our hope and our help in this Savior this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.